story of, of the day of Pentecost. <clears throat> you may not know this, but my grandmother's name was Lucinda. She was always grandma to me, but her given name was Lucinda. And when she was still living and uh, she would introduce me to her friends or I would meet her friends at church, uh, people felt like they knew me just a little bit because they knew I was her grandson. I was Lucinda's grandson. And I didn't mind that. I didn't mind being known as her grandson because I loved her and I respected who she was. My grandmother was uh, a quiet and steady person. She was warm when you talked to her, and she was somebody who liked to laugh. Um, I was happy to be known as her grandson. And now, after what seems like only a few years, that turned, I happen to be a grandpa myself. Um, it, like I said, it just seems like a few years ago that I was with her as her grandson, and now I have grandchildren. But when you meet my grandchildren, if they come here and you meet them, <clears throat> you probably feel like you know them at least a little bit because you know they're my grandchildren. You feel like you know something about them. But you know what's interesting is that I, my grandmother didn't choose me. I didn't choose my grandmother. I was born into her family. And I, I didn't choose my grandchildren, and they didn't choose me to be their grandpa. They were born into our family. We love each other. We, we you know, come to, like I came to love my grandmother, my grandchildren love me, but we didn't choose each other. It might be kind of weird to think about choosing your grandparents. Maybe you've never thought about that before, unless your, parent, your grandparents have passed away. Maybe they passed away when you were young, or sometimes uh, parents, li- grandparents live far away. You live in a different state, and so maybe you seek out someone to, to f- kind of fill that role in your life, an older couple or an older person to be a grandmother or a grandfather to you. Have you ever heard someone say that God doesn't have any grandchildren? God doesn't have any grandchildren. We say that because Becoming part of God's family works a little differently than becoming part of our natural, our biological families. We don't choose to become part of our biological families, but we have to choose to become part of God's family. A central part of the good news that Jesus came to announce is that through his life and through his death and through his resurrection, we can be saved from the penalty and from the power of sin in our lives, and we can begin to live a whole new way of life as the children of God, as the children of God. We can be reconciled to God. We can, our relationship with God can be repaired. This morning we talked about being at peace with God. That's what we're talking about. Our relationship with God can be repaired or we can be reconciled to him and we can begin to live as his children. That's true. So no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what's in your past, you can become, you could be a child of God. But you can also decide not to be a child of God. The Gospel of Mark says that after Jesus was tempted in the desert, he went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So I'm guessing this was a summary of his sermon. This probably wasn't all he said. But the summary was, repent or turn away from your sin, repent of your sin, and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, 
and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. So there's a third part of what Jesus said, come follow me. His message, so in in the early parts of the gospels, he begins the process of calling people to follow him. And over and over he says, repent, believe in me, and come follow me. Come follow me. Some people followed him, if you know the stories. Some people said yes, and they followed him. But other people did not follow him. As I said, you have to choose whether or not you follow, whether or not you become a child of God. And that's actually still the call of Jesus to you and to me. Repent or turn away from the sin in your life. Believe in me. Believe that I am, I, Jesus, am who I say I am and what I've done. And come, follow me. That's still the call of Jesus to us today. In the Gospel of John, the the writer of the book of John uses this phrase, believe in him, over and over again. And Jesus himself uses this phrase, believe in me. In fact, at the end of the book of John, one of the things that John says in chapter 20 is, I wrote this book, this Gospel of John, I wrote this book so so that you would believe, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you would have life in his name. In other words, the whole point, the whole reason I wrote this gospel, this book of John, is to convince you of those things, to convince you that he, was the Messiah, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you'll have life in his name. As I said, Jesus himself uses that phrase, believe or believe in me, all throughout the gospel. If, for example, in chapter 3, Jesus uses this phrase, He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, so the Son of Man must must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. There's There's that word again. Everyone who believes in him may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Three times in that one verse. So Jesus himself is the one who invites us, who commands us to follow him, to obey him. But if you know the story of Jesus, you know that he doesn't force anyone to follow him. He doesn't force anyone to do that, to obey his commands or nor to to follow him. It's also true that no one else can force you to do that. No one can make you follow Jesus. No one can make you obey his commands or surrender your life to him. And it's also true that no one else can on your behalf accept his offer of true life and of forgiveness for your sin. No one else can believe or follow for you. It's an offer you have to choose to accept for yourself. And so that's what we mean when we say, God doesn't have any grandchildren. He only has children. You can't, in other words, you can't be God, you can't become the child, the son or daughter of God based on someone else's decision or desire for you. You have to choose that for yourself. Today's sermon is the third in a series 
that we're calling At the Core. We've prepared a, a handout for the series that's on the small white table in the lobby if you don't already have one. A little, a little handout like this that summarizes six key ideas that are at the core of the Anabaptist Mennonite way of following Jesus. And on this handout, we have a, a three-sentence summary that we've prepared of the six key ideas. And that reads like this. I think we have, yeah, we have it on the screen. Jesus is Lord over absolutely everything. The kingdom of God is where people unite under the lordship of Jesus. And we choose to follow Jesus together, surrendering our lives in love like he did. Each of those bolded words there, I guess they show up yellow on the screen, each of those highlighted words will be, is the focus of one of our sermons. So two weeks ago, we heard the sermon about Jesus is Lord over absolutely everything. And we put that one first because everything else flows from that understanding. In fact, we've said, let's say this one out loud together each week so it sticks in our minds. So that if we, if we end this series and you remember nothing else, you'll remember this one. Let's say it together again this morning. Jesus is Lord over absolutely everything. Let's say it again. Jesus is Lord over absolutely everything. Good way to memorize, right? Say it out loud and repeat it over and over. Last week, we looked at the kingdom of God. We said the kingdom of God is where people are united under the lordship of Jesus. So those, the people who surrender their lives to the lordship of Jesus are those who come together in the kingdom of God. This morning, we're talking about choosing to follow Jesus. Next week, we'll talk about what following means. You see, that's the next highlighted word. And after that, following Jesus together and then surrendering our lives in love like he did. That's the series that we're in at the moment. I hope, as I said before, I hope none of these themes are completely new ideas to you if, you if you've been part of our congregation for any time. I hope these are ideas that sound pretty familiar to you because if they really are core for us, they should show up all over the place in our preaching and in our teaching and our conversations and the way we talk about what it means to, to be Christians or to follow Jesus. We're hoping to just present them in a fresh way and to highlight them because maybe you've never really thought about what's really at the core of who we are. But I think it's important for us to be reminded of them from time to time if we really aspire to be faithful as an Anabaptist Mennonite congregation. What does it mean for us to do that? So our main point today is that we choose to follow Jesus. But I think it's important to remember that choosing is a little tricky for us. Choosing is a little tricky for us because we're really used to making choices, and I've talked about this before, we're really used to making choices as consumers, aren't we? We're used to picking the products and the entertainment and maybe even the people that please us and rejecting the ones that we're not in the mood for. I'm not in the mood for that entertainment right now, so I'm gonna pick something else. I'm not in the mood for that product right now, so I'm gonna pick a different product or Maybe I'm not even in the mood for that person right now and I'm gonna choose to be with someone else. And we're so used to making those kinds of choices that we, it, it trains our minds to think that the whole world around us should be reshaped to please us. That the world around me should be reshaped according to what I prefer, what I desire. And so it's really easy for us when we talk about choosing to follow Jesus, it's really easy for us to begin thinking that Jesus is just another choice for me to make as I think about shaping my life and my world. I can easily think of Jesus as just another, like a consumer choice that's up to me. And to think that I'm inviting Jesus into my world 
I'm inviting Jesus into my experience. And that is kind of how we experience it. But the reality is that I'm living in Jesus' world. If Jesus is Lord of absolutely everything, if that's literally true, I'm just waking up to that reality when I come to surrender my life to him. I'm just lining myself up with what's really true about the world around me. But it's tempting to think of Jesus as as another tool in my toolbox that helps me get a project done or another product or another person that might be useful or that, to me or that might be helpful to me in living the life I want to live. And like I said, it's a little tricky because it is true that Jesus promises us forgiveness for our sins. Jesus promises us abundant life. Jesus promises us a life that's flowing with joy and with peace. He does promise us the mercy of God. And we say, wow, yes, please, more of those things. I want more of those things in my life. Of course you do. Of course I do. But what we often forget is that he's the one who gets to decide what those look like. He's the one who decides what joy and peace really are, what contentment really is. We don't want to think about that very hard because I think you and I, and I'm with you in this, I think generally speaking, most of us in the U.S. and maybe in the Western world kind of have a goal for our lives of being comfortable and impressing other people. There's more to it than that, of course, but mostly we really kind of grab, our choices lead us toward what's comfortable for us and what would impress other people. And so we are often evaluating our options based on those two things. But Jesus actually talked specifically about that. And it's good that you're sitting down when I read this because he's going to challenge you on this one. So you might want to hold on to your bench. Uh, Gospel of Luke chapter 14 says that one time a large crowd was following Jesus. And he turned around and said to the crowd who was following him, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. (laughs) You must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father, and then he lists, your father and your mother, your wife or your husband and your children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. He says you must hate your own life by comparison to your, to your uh, following of me. Otherwise, he says, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Remember what a cross is. It's not just a minor inconvenience or a pain in your shoulder. A cross is an instrument of torture and death. And Jesus is saying, if you don't, aren't willing to carry your cross, in other words, if you aren't willing to give up everything, everything that you hold on to, and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't, so, so, it says, but don't begin. It might properly say, so don't begin. So don't do this, don't choose for this before you count the cost. This is a costly decision. It's not just a a decision that you make to increase the comfort in your life. It's not just a decision you make to impress other people. Don't make this choice until you count the cost. He says, because who would begin building a building, who would begin construction on a building without first calculating the cost of building that to see if there's enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation of your building before running out of money, and everyone would laugh at you, and they would say, there's that person who, um, who started that building but couldn't afford to finish it. They couldn't see through their commitment. 
And Jesus says in verse 33, so you cannot be my disciple without giving up everything you own, without giving up everything you know. I I don't think it means that we need to cash out everything we own. It doesn't mean you need to literally burn down every property you own. I think what it means is you need to be willing to surrender all of it to Jesus, all of it. Jesus is not a tool that we use to become more successful or more popular or healthier or richer. Those things might happen, but Jesus is not a means to those ends. He's not someone or something that we attach to in order to accomplish our goals for our lives. Jesus is Lord over absolutely everything, and he lovingly commands us, lovingly invites us, lovingly urges us to surrender everything that we are, everything that we hope for, everything that we have to his lordship, to choose to do that. And he says, don't choose to follow me unless you mean it, unless you're willing to follow in that way, unless you're willing to value me and my call over absolutely everything else. In, this ver- in these verses in Luke 14, he mentions specifically your family ties. And he says, unless you're willing to love me more, or in other words, let your allegiance to me shape the way you relate to your family, your husband, your wife, your children, your mother, your father, unless you're willing to let my call on your life shape the way you relate to them, then don't be my disciple. Don't claim to be my disciple. And unless you're willing to let your, my call on your life shape your whole life, don't choose to follow me. Other passages, he says, you need to give up all your possessions. You need to give up all of your money. You need to give up your popularity. All of those things need to be, our idea about those things need to be reshaped by our surrender to the Lord Jesus. So our main point today is we choose to follow Jesus, but the, the second main point that follows directly from it is choosing to follow Jesus means surrendering to his way. Surrendering to his way. In other words, it means uh, giving up on the, the, my own ability to determine what's best for me. It's, it's saying, Lord Jesus, I believe that what you will choose for me, what you have for me, is really for my own good. It's, it's, you know better than I do what I need. You know better what I, than I do who I should become. He invites us to give that up rather than holding on to it. So it's more than just believing he can help me. When I believe in him, I'm not just believing he can help me. It means being deeply convinced and believing that he knows better than I do what's good for me. And so choosing to follow Jesus means surrendering to his way. A Christian writer from several years ago, C.S. Lewis, uh, once said, and this is my paraphrase, he said, "When when someone turns to Christ, Some other bad habits get corrected and things seem to be going pretty well in their lives because their bad habits have been corrected and they begin to expect that their life should flow fairly smoothly from now on. And so when troubles come along, troubles like illness or money troubles or new kinds of temptation, they're often disappointed because they think, okay, those things might have been necessary to get my attention in the old days and to get me to repent from my bad habits, my sin, But why is this happening to me now? Now that I've surrendered my life to Christ, why is this happening now? Lewis says it's because God is pushing them to a higher level. He's putting them in a situation where they'll have to be a lot braver, a lot more patient, a lot more loving than they ever dreamed they'd have to be. 
than they ever imagined that they wanted to be, more loving, more patient, more brave. This might all seem unnecessary to us, but that's because we just don't understand the tremendous thing he means to make of us. And Lewis says, imagine yourself as a living house. Imagine that you were a house, that a, a living house, um, where God comes in to rebuild that house. He comes in to rebuild you, come, comes in to remake you as a, as a house. At first, you can understand what he's doing. He's cleaning out the drains. He's fixing the holes in the roof, things like that. I mean, you knew those repairs needed to be made, so you're, okay, yeah, he's fixing the roof. Okay, he's cleaning out the drains. That's fine. You're not surprised when he makes those adjustments. But then, but then as you go along, he starts knocking you, the house, around in a way that really hurts and that doesn't even make sense. He starts knocking you around in ways that you don't understand and you think, what in the world is he up to? What is going on here? Why is this happening? Why is God doing this to me? The explanation, Lewis says, is that he's building quite a different house from the one you imagined for yourself. It turns out he's, he's building a whole new wing over here. He's adding a whole new floor to your building over here. He's running up a tower. He's making courtyards around you. What's he doing? He's reshaping you. You thought you were going to be just a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He's making you into a palace, and Lewis says he's building a palace that he intends to come and live in himself. So he's pushing us beyond our imaginations for our own lives. I happened to come across a, a Facebook post recently from a, a young woman who's a friend of ours who, who lives in, uh, out of state. Um, you know, this young woman recently experienced a miscarriage when she was eight weeks pregnant with her second child, and it, I thought, oh, she's talking exactly about what Lewis was pointing us to. God's been knocking her around and reshaping her. She says, at first she thought about this miscarriage. She thought, oh, this is no big deal. Eight weeks is pretty early for a miscarriage. It happens. I know that miscarriages happen. And she thought, I know I can try again. But several weeks later, she says, a grief set in. A grief uh, settled deep into my core. I felt like something was missing. And after that, nothing could shake that grief that kept crawling its way back into my mind and into my heart. And I started wrestling with God in my grief. I was asking God to just take the feelings away, to take away the grieving process, just take it away from me. I wanted to move on so badly. I eventually realized that I was severely discontented in large part because my plans for my life had been disrupted. She said, that's why, I realized that's why I was grieving. I wanted things that no longer seemed possible in my life. I wanted my baby, so these are some of the things that she wanted. I wanted my babies to grow up close in age. I wanted to make the empty room in our house a well-loved and used space. And I wanted a family of five before I was 35, preferably earlier. That was my plan or my dream for myself, my dream for my family. And up until recently, we were on track to see that come true. She says, part of what I was grieving was the loss of that dream. Part of what I was grieving was the loss of that dream. And I thought when I read that, that you know, many of us are grieving the loss of a dream something we hoped would be true in our lives, that would come true. And when we get to the point where it seems clear that that's not going to happen, we can grieve, we can become angry. Not that those are inappropriate reactions, those are feelings to be worked through in the face of those dreams. 
in, in the face of the loss of those dreams. She says, as I continued to pray and grieve and pondered, I realized how much I had been given, how much I had been given. So she was thinking about what she was losing, but now she's thinking about what she'd been given. I knew, and, and I realized that God knew what I needed. If you had asked me in high school what I would be doing at age 30, my dreams would not have been focused on family life. In high school, I would have told you that at age 30, I would be single, driving a Volkswagen Beetle, working in a biological warfare defense program in a big city with a cat at home. But then she says, when I gave my life to God, he did something entirely different with it. This person's pretty self-aware. She said, I didn't want and I resisted every single one of the things that have brought the greatest joys in my life because they weren't in my plan for my life. And although there has been immense pain with each of the blessings he has given me, that phrase just continues to haunt me. She says, there's been immense pain connected to each of the blessings that God has given me things that, I'm now, that are now bringing me much joy in my life because God does not promise ease. She says now, um, she's not single, she's married, she has a husband, she has a, a son. She says, I have a, a husband who loves me better than I can imagine, a son who brings light to every room he's in. I have a job as an anesthesiologist that is fulfilling. And the richest of all of these things that I enjoy is a relationship with God that's continually growing deeper. So now, despite what I am missing, and despite how different her life is than what she imagined, she said, I am content. I understand what Paul meant when he said, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. She said, in realizing, in realizing how God has reshaped my life, I hear him saying, I know what I'm doing. I, I know where you're going, and I am enough. And the one thing I would add to that is I love you. I love you. I will care for you no matter what happens in your life. And she says, my soul responds with a sigh of relief, with a sigh of relief knowing that God is caring for me. So for us in the Anabaptist Mennonite faith stream, Christian stream, when we say we choose to follow Jesus, it means we choose to follow the one who is the Lord of absolutely everything. It means that we accept his rule over us too. It means we we, want to cooperate with his direction for absolutely every part of our lives. And so as I said earlier, yes, we, we do choose to follow Jesus, but we also understand that choosing to follow Jesus means surrendering to his way surrendering to his way. So we understand that to mean, and because of that, we understand that to mean that conversion or surrendering my life to Jesus is really the starting point of a life of following. It's not the end goal of our spiritual lives to surrender to Jesus or to, or to, become, uh, com- to, to be forgiven of our sins. That's not the end goal of our, our spiritual lives. That's really the starting point of our spiritual journey or maybe a starting point of the new spiritual journey of walking with Jesus, of following a journey of discipleship. That's also why we baptize believers. We baptize people who choose to follow Jesus. Baptism means a person is old enough to make that choice for themselves. That it doesn't, you know, someone else hasn't made the choice for them. They've freely chosen to follow Jesus. And they understand that it's a whole life lifelong commitment of the, of the demanding sort that I described earlier. It's a commitment that requires all of my life, including a willingness to suffer if need be for the sake of Jesus. 
We also believe that children are innocent before God in these regards until they're old enough to make that decision on their own. Maybe you've heard the phrase, I don't hear it as much anymore as I used to, but the phrase age of accountability. We're talking about when a child becomes old enough to be accountable for their own sin. Old enough to repent of their sin on their own and to, to know what they're doing, to understand not only just turning away from sin, but also making a a very serious commitment uh, for the rest of their lives to follow Jesus. So this morning, I'm guessing that you either have or haven't made a conscious decision to follow Jesus. If you have made that decision, I would urge you to keep following, to keep following faithfully and to be reminded this morning that that choice, that decision to follow, is you continue to grow in your understanding of what that means. You continue to surrender more and more of your life to him as he makes it clear to you that, oh, there's this one area that you still haven't surrendered to me fully. And I hope that you're responding again to say, yes, I want to surrender that, that part of my life to you. So if you have made the decision to follow Jesus, have you, are, are you trusting that he knows better than you do what's good for you? That his love for you is going to care for you even more profoundly than your own love for yourself. And if you have never chosen to follow Jesus, if you've never surrendered your life to his rule, I would urge you to do that today. I hope that you understand more what that means today. I'm going to offer a prayer in just a moment that you're welcome to repeat with me in your minds or in your heart as I pray it. Also, if you've chosen to follow Jesus and you realize this, uh, this morning, you realize, oh, you know what? I did, I have chosen to follow Jesus, but I really chose to follow him as a convenience or as a tool in my own life to make my life better. I was really after him for what he could do for me. I wasn't really thinking of surrendering my life to his way. You might want to pray this prayer of surrender again in a, in a fresh way with deeper understanding to say, Lord, I've been attempting to follow you, but I've been, it was more like a consumer choice where I thought of you as somebody who was going to help, help me get to my goals in my life. And it's not that I you know, that, that I completely disregard my goals, but I want to take on your, I want to surrender all of what I hope for in my life to you. So that if, if you want to pray along with me, you're welcome to do that as we pray. Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. I have rejected your rule over my life and I ask you to forgive me. I believe, I believe that you are the son of God that you died for my sins and I believe that you rose from the dead. Today I choose to turn from my sins and to invite you to become Lord of my heart and Lord of my life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior from this day forward. Lord, we're reminded this morning that you are Lord of absolutely everything. And on behalf of all of us, Lord, I invite you to be at work among us, to highlight the places in our lives that are not lined up with your Lordship, that are not surrendered, <clears throat> not surrendered to your Lordship. Lord, I thank you that your love for us is unfathomable, that it's beyond our understanding, that your grace and your love uh, are are incredible in the way they pursue us, that you are relentless in the way that you pursue us in a loving and gracious way. Lord, soften our hearts 
do what you need to to get our attention, Lord, to turn away from relying on our own imaginations of what's best for us. Make clear to us what you have for us, that we might follow you faithfully. We pray all these things in your name, O Lord Jesus.